Good afternoon. It is Friday, June 1st, and I am delighted to have as our guest today the author of a book called How Remarkable Women Lead. And our guest is Joanna Barsh, and Joanna is passionate about a whole bunch of things. But one of the things that she is the most passionate about is accelerating the development of women leaders and she has been a New York City Commissioner on Women's Issues since 2002, appointed by Mayor Mike. Joanna has also created the McKinsey Centered Leadership Project, including a video archive of more than 125 in-depth interviews with women leaders from around the world. Joanna, I would love to have you just give us the thumbnail of, of you and, and more than the, the printed bio. Uh, you know, who is Joanna Barsh? What's your background? Uh, Tell us a little bit about you. Okay, I'd, I'd love to. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me on the show. I uh, have been at McKinsey & Company, which is a global uh, consulting firm, for the last 30 years. And uh, uh, that uh, is a long, long time. And sometime around the time I turned 50, I was a senior partner and uh, loving the work that I do, serving companies in the media, consumer, and retail spaces. And I have a uh, fabulous family, two daughters who are just absolutely perfect, and a husband that I'm still married to after all these years, as they say. I and, live and in New York City. Absolutely perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that David is perfect, but he is my compliment in many, many ways. I'm afraid of everything. He's afraid of nothing. And uh, I'm uh, a born industrious busy bee, and he gets pretty much nothing done. So that would sum us up. <laughs> but I love and, him dearly, and he actually helped me start the Centered Leadership Project. Oh, cool. Well, it sounds like I'm looking in the mirror. <laughs> so, uh, let's, so, wow, so being with McKinsey that long, there probably wasn't a lot before that. But why don't you tell us how you landed at McKinsey? Because 30 years ago, women uh, in consulting uh, wasn't what it is today. My first dream uh, was to be uh, uh, an artist, and I went to school and studied English literature and painting. Got out of school and decided that I really wanted to be in the movie business. <laughs> Worked on a few movies as what they call a gopher. The gopher is the person who gets stuff done. But I didn't know how to drive, so I was actually a really useless gopher. Uh, and um, worked in retail as a result, moved into retail thinking this this would be it. it, it what's more exciting than fashion? And I found uh, Bloomingdale's and then at Macy's that I didn't love it. And people were yelling at me all the time. Uh, and as hard as I worked, nothing ever seemed to be right. And that's what took me to a conversation with my stepfather one day. And he said, why don't you go to the Harvard Business School? And I'd never heard of the Harvard Business School. <laughs> I was rejected from Harvard uh, as a college uh, for me. And so I thought, wow, do I get a second chance? Why would they ever want me? Well, they did uh, invite me to come, and I went. And frankly, in my first summer, McKinsey was interviewing people on campus, and everybody in my particular class wanted to be interviewed at McKinsey. And so I said, I'm going to sign up too. One of my teachers said, you'll never get in. I know because I work for them, and they would never want somebody like you. Uh, with your background and um, lack of uh, quantitative experience. So I said, great, that's that's it. That was actually my first strength, which I did not 
in fact, find out for 30 years or 25 years, let's call it. But my strength, my top strength is what they call industriousness and perseverance. I get around obstacles, and that was a big challenge. So I applied, and I got in, and uh, as as you pointed out, I've been there for pretty much more than half my life. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, to, to be fair, business has changed dramatically, and I'm sure that the types of companies that you are serving, uh, I, th- I mean, I think just about the travel industry, which uh, – uh, about half of our membership is from the travel industry, simply because that's my—that's where my roots are. Um, you know, we certainly have seen, seen tremendous changes in distribution and technology, and and in reach, and in how companies have had to manage. So, uh, you know, 30 years with with one company isn't like doing the same thing for 30 years. For sure, it's not. Uh, that's absolutely true. I've worked in. Canada, the U.S., and England, in uh, Holland, uh, China, uh, L.A., you know, all over. McKinsey's been a brilliant platform for just l- learning more about the world and getting a chance to help lots and lots of companies. So it has been a really interesting journey. Uh, but I must say, starting with that very first challenge, why would they want somebody like you, I have taken my own personal journey, which took me far too long to get started. Well, and and that's, uh, you mentioned this earlier, that when you turned 50, something happened to you. Um, Can can we start with that? Because I'm assuming that that was really the catalyst, um, you know, in in realizing that you needed to write this book. And and I'd like to also hear about who who did you think was going to be the audience for this book? You know, we wrote the book as an afterthought to the journey that I was on and that I then started to bring all of my colleagues on with me. And that was to find out who I really was as a leader, what strengths I was building on, how to use emotion in a positive way at work, how to feel that my life was worth living, and in particular, how to face my fears and work through them, take risks in order to grow at an accelerated rate and to feel really fabulous at the end of the work week and the end of each day. Um, we, we took what we'd learned and shaped this approach called centered leadership. We didn't know what to call it, uh, but I felt that every woman, no matter if she's running a, a Fortune 500 company or running her own business with just herself, and no one else is a leader. And all of us put things in our way that limit us. And if we could figure out what those are, we would then have the choice whether to remove it and to shift. And if we decided to do that, then we would practice and get better and better and in essence bring more of ourselves to what we're doing, make a bigger difference, and feel really alive and just joyous more of the time. And that's, in essence, the journey of centered leadership. The book actually came after we had uh, begun our training internally at McKinsey. And the young woman was working with me, Susie Cranston, said to me, you know, we should write a book. And I, I thought <laughs> she's such a word. <laughs> <laughs> she's such a wonderful person. She was so upbeat and optimistic that I thought, okay, well, you know, 
I'll go and talk to a book agent, and we'll very quickly find out that nobody wants our book. <laughs> you can see the pattern. <laughs> so um, I called up an old client of uh, who I had served years before, and it turned out he was a book agent, and I, I sent in this internal publication to him. I went to visit him, and he said, you need to write uh, a treatment. I didn't know what it was, so he gave me a couple of versions of it and said, write this up, let's talk in three weeks, thinking I would just go away. So we wrote it up, and um, he said, great, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up some meetings for us. And the first meeting was with a very nice gentleman who wanted us to write a book that would be equivalent to the four-hour work week. And we were shocked and said, we're from McKinsey. We, we don't believe in the four-hour work week. Well, what are you thinking about? And so, and so he said goodbye, call us you know, when you're ready <laughs> to talk. And, and then oh. we set up the next day a second meeting, and we went into the meeting. I was pretty down. Susie, who's optimistic, was extremely up. <laughs> and in the second meeting, we, by the time we had sat down in our chairs, uh, the publisher and the editor said, we want your book. <laughs> we think this is going to help women everywhere, and it's going to be so fantastic. It's been waiting to be written. And I, we, I was in love um, with, with the Random House uh, folks. And we wrote the book in, I'd say, a few weeks. Um, that book was sitting inside me. Uh, just burning to come out, and um, I worked with an internal person who edited and literally is a man. He would edit, and I would edit back, then he would edit, and I would edit back, then he would edit, and it went on and on until I finally said, okay, I have the pen, we're done now. <laughs> and it, the book like poured out, uh, and one woman dropped out. Uh, she didn't want to be in the book after all, and so at the very last minute, I added another woman to the book and wrote some uh, new chapters to it, which was really exciting. And then we did research to back it up. Uh, the research is one of the chapters at the very end of the book for people who want the science. But for most people, this uh, this book is for all women who have a desire to lead, <coughs> excuse me, and who believe that there's more inside them than is coming out or that others are recognizing. That's pretty much everybody who wants to make a difference in this world. And uh, we've got, we've sold 60,000 copies so far. So it's not, you know, it's not a million copy bestseller, but there are an awful lot of women out there who have a lot to contribute. Absolutely. And and the thing I always love, and I, I would expect nothing less than somebody from McKenzie, is a practical framework that people can relate to. I am highly visual. I don't know whether it's because I'm over 50 and just don't have the capacity for detail anymore. <laughs> but but when I take a look at the diagram, uh, which is actually on your trulyamazingwoman.com uh, site, uh, the five dimensions of centered leadership is really the framework uh, for this book. And again, I wish I could uh, show this visually uh, to the folks on the phone, but if you can imagine five circles intersecting, uh, one being meaning, and we're going to talk about each of these, meaning, managing energy, positive framing, connecting, and engaging, that that, that is uh, our personal and professional context influences all of those, but that becomes those dimensions of, of actually being centered in your leadership. So why don't we dive right into the first one. Uh, talk to us about meaning. I'm glad you picked that one because it really is the anchor for the whole 
leadership model. Meaning is uh, what brings women to work. Because if you have people at home you take care of, whether they're children or family members or pets or just a homestead, uh, you know how important it is to uh, have love in your life. And so when you come to work, you want to find a reason to be there that would take you away from the things at home. Uh, and uh, women actually place meaning higher than men. Again, most women, not all women, most men, not all men. Men tend to place pay and status higher than uh, deriving meaning at work. So it's really important to most of us. And it builds on strengths. Um, in my earlier story, I talked about industriousness and perseverance. Mm -hmm. I turned to the positive psychologist for this. Martin Seligman has a website called uh, AuthenticHappiness.org where you could actually take the long-form character assessment. Uh, and learn about what your top strengths are. For years at McKinsey, I had been denying the strengths that I have in order to be somebody that I thought would be successful. My top strengths, beside industriousness, are humor and zest, zest for living, which and you don't imagine a McKinsey partner bouncing around the hallway saying, let's have, you know, let's get into this, which is who I was, and I'm a little bit under five feet tall, so it's a pretty funny image of me uh, bouncing up and down client halls. Instead, I tried to be very serious, very self-regulating, extremely modest, and all of the things that are actually at the bottom of my list of strengths. So you can imagine, um, I did well, but I didn't do as well as I could. This is the most important piece. We're all taught to try to get 100. And when we get 95 or 90 or 85 or 80, usually one of our parents, when we're growing up, says to us, what did you do? Where's the rest of it? And so we, tr we work and work and work to get to that A. And life's not about that. Life's about figuring out your strengths and making sure you build on them and you use them every day. And when you do, you gain so much energy, but you also are infectious. The people around you are drawn to you and want to work with you. Because well, so your strengths carry that, I so, so needed to hear that. Because <laughs> my kids get out of school the end of next week, and I've got a fifth grader and an eighth grader. And our eighth grader has been putting so much pressure on herself because she knows that she's getting Bs in a number of classes. And and she knows that that is not what we would have her get. Because yeah. definitely an A student. Um, but I really do try to help her understand this particular point. So I'm I'm so glad uh, that that you mentioned that because, you know, one of the reasons why we can't find the meaning is because, you know, we're searching for something else that somebody told us was important, and and we're not really searching for for what's inside of us. So I love that. And and again, for our our listeners who are perhaps out out for a walk or uh, or in their cars when they're listening to this. Uh, the, the different components of, of this section of the book is it all begins with meaning, your own happiness equation, start with your strengths, a sense of purpose, and the dream catcher. Can you talk to us a little bit about the dream catcher before we Oh, yeah, such a, such a great story. The, um, uh, all the, these things uh, for folks who are, who are listening and haven't seen the book are, are uh, important parts of 
uh, of meaning. So um, I love uh, Alondra de la Para. Alondra is a young woman. She's now probably in her early 30s who grew up in Mexico uh, with a wonderful father and mother who taught her to dream. And when she was 13, she listened to an orchestra and realized that she really wanted to be an orchestra leader. But as a lot of people know, there are extremely few women who ever get that opportunity in life. It's a very male field. And Alondra's father encouraged her in the dream. And she ended up in an orchestra leading camp, when, uh, which was a, a young woman in her 20s. But, but the people who came to that camp were not uh, young people. They were some of the best orchestra leaders in the country who were going to this very, very special program. And there was Alondra, who wept because she just didn't think that she could measure up. And the teacher that she had saw something in her and helped pull it out of her and became her sponsor. Very important part of connecting, which we'll get to. But Alondra did, in fact, found an orchestra. She created it with a few friends, the Philharmonic of the Americas, that she designed to build, to, to show pieces to people from all over the Americas, not just the United States. Uh, so when you listen to her orchestra, which if you get a chance uh, to do that, they play some real passionate Latin American music that's just simply wonderful. And she finds some lesser-known pieces in the United States that have that same zest, if you would, to it. And Alondra has come a very long way. She's now quite a coveted uh, uh, visiting orchestra leader, so she travels all over to uh, be a visiting uh, person and put on shows. Uh, Just filled with spirit. And the most important thing that Alondra taught me is that when you connect with each person in the orchestra, the whole orchestra at the same time, she says, that's when you know that music can change the world. So Alondra, who has many other ups and downs in her life, actually defines meaning for us in a very powerful way. Mm. Very, very powerful. So let's move on to framing. And again, just to lay the groundwork here, the the sections of of, uh, the framing part of the book talk about a matter of framing, the practice of optimism, moving on, ready for change, and the journey, not the destination. So talk to us about positive framing. Sure. So at the very simplest level, think about a situation in which you were not at your best. And maybe you were even shaking a bit or you're, you got a stomachache or a headache or, or your, your uh, heart started to race and maybe you sweat. Uh, everybody has something that clues them into when they're not at their best and they're quite anxious. Start with that and then think about that situation and what caused that to happen. So we tend to see the world not in a clear and fact-based way, but in a somewhat distorted way. And when we're not at our best, it's when we are hijacked by a little part of our brain that uh, tries to save us from being eaten by dinosaurs. Indeed, that part of our brain called the amygdala is uh, a very ancient uh, part of the brain that regulates body temperature and things that you don't even think about during the day. But it also tries to preserve you from getting eaten or being hurt in other ways. You're in a meeting, let's say, or you're having an altercation with a, a family member, and the amygdala 
triggers you, and before you know it, you're behaving in ways you just didn't want to. That's the, and now you need reframing. <laughs> and so the first part is crying. crying in front of your male crying, counterparts. Yeah, exactly. And, and when you're crying, you know you're in the middle of it. So the, fir- the first step to, is to become aware that this is happening. Because right. often we're not even aware at the time. We're just literally in a, in a lockdown or shutdown mode. And then we teach pause. How do you get outside that situation in an outer body experience and say, what's happening to me now? And breathing or smiling or asking a question or in some matter uh, getting your rational brain back into, into the driver's seat, essentially. And then from there, you begin to say, how could I shift? Why does this always happen to me? I'll give you an example in framing. I I used to be completely undone by bullies, and every single company has, and most schools have bullies. There are bullies everywhere in the world, and they tend to be large, intimidating people or very, very mean-spirited people. And I always think of a bully as attacking me, and I always go into a meeting saying, there's a bully there. It's going to happen again. And what's going to happen? I'm going to become a deer in headlights. I'm not going to be able to think. I'm really going to seem stupid and incompetent, and before you know it, that bully is going to really control me. And when I really, really understood that, was in a situation that happened where I, I, I did cry in the middle of a client negotiation, and I felt humiliated, embarrassed, everything was going wrong for me. Uh, and when I finally stepped back, I learned that actually, and this is crazy, but really true, I brought that frame into the meeting. I thought that would happen. In other words, I kind of made it happen. The bully was still the bully, but he wasn't necessarily bullying me. He was just being aggressive towards everybody. And I let it happen. I got triggered, and I became undone by myself. I am no longer affected by bullies. I actually enjoy them because they tend to be very smart people who really want what they want to have happen. And if you get curious about them, most of the time bullies are afraid of something. (laughs) And if you can figure that out, you can really be helpful to them. But it starts with having compassion for people that you don't normally like. But once you have compassion, you get curious about them and you begin to help them, which takes the focus off yourself. And in essence, what you're doing is reframing, shifting your mindset, in my case, from I'm going to be humiliated and embarrassed in this situation to this person is going to help me make the project much, much better. Exactly. Yeah, I I had a very similar situation where I blew a three-year negotiation or a, a something I had been working on for three years with a, a very, very large Japanese company. Oh, boy. And, uh, and did not make sure that I had my my champion in the meeting, let let his boss come in, and, and I ended up dissolving into tears. And, and they cut off any further discussions. And, I mean, we had the perfect product for them. I mean, it was just crazy. But you're right. You know, that that's something that you do walk in with, with that – that sense of foreboding and uh, not having that framing, uh, positive framing can, can definitely uh, Im- impact the outcome. So let's talk about connecting because, you know, I, I know that the women within the executive girlfriends group, 
uh, really value connecting. It's one of the reasons why we even exist, uh, because we've got a, a group of, of disparate women, some who are with Fortune 100 companies, some who are with multinational Fortune 500s, uh, all the way down to uh, individuals who are in between jobs. We call that in between successes. Uh, mm -hmm. or who are trying their hand at consulting because they did have to leave a, a corporate job. So talk to us about connecting. The most important thing with connecting is to recognize that most women have an even greater capacity than men to build meaningful relationships. So we start with strengths. However, most of us go into the workplace looking for friendship when, in fact, what uh, we really find there are more transactional relationships. Mm -hmm. And we misapply, if you would, uh, what we would do for a friend uh, and lose the opportunity to connect uh, with people who could really help us. The most important kind of relationship when you're growing and you're on your way up the ladder is with a sponsor. And a sponsor is not a mentor. Mentors are fantastic, and women are very, very good at having mentors. Uh, but those are wise people who share life experiences or wisdom with you, and they don't necessarily help you. They offer you counsel. They don't even need to know you, and they certainly aren't on the hook to help you get uh, advanced. A sponsor is the opposite. A sponsor believes in you because he or she has already seen you at work and knows you're very good. A sponsor opens up doors to opportunity for you and then pushes you through them because a lot of women, all too many women, will say, I'm not ready for that opportunity, whereas a man will say, bring it on. What's the worst that's going to happen to me? So women who uh, aren't, don't believe they're ready sometimes need to be pushed. A friend could do it, but a sponsor will do that. A sponsor will then also help you when you make mistakes. We all do. We all make mistakes. And a sponsor will recognize that that's just par for the course, dust you off, lift you up, help you figure it out, and then tell everybody what a great job you're doing. Most importantly, a sponsor is an advocate. So a sponsor will help you get that next job. We all need at least one, if not two or three. It's hard to have more than that because they take a lot of work. And indeed, sponsors get a lot back from the people that they sponsor, but they tend to sponsor people who look exactly like them, which is harder for women because not that many senior people are women. So we have the onus is on us to cultivate sponsors and to build that relationship and make those senior men feel comfortable helping us. Right, right. Excellent. So let's move on to engaging. Sure. <laughs> Engaging is where, and we like to say, where the rubber meets the road. It's where you become a person and cross the line to, in service of the vision that you have for yourself, your best self, and actually face fear and face it straight in the face because fear actually will help us but it w and it will never go away. But indeed, it can also paralyze us. So how do you do that? You think about the hope that you have. What is it that really matters to you? What are you truly trying to achieve? And then face the fear, the fear of I might fail, I'm not good enough, maybe they'll find out that I'm really a fraud, an imposter, uh, maybe maybe I won't be recognized, maybe um, I have to, I have to 
to be planned better and and I'm not in control here and all kinds of things. I used to be afraid that I would lose my job and never, never find another job and become homeless. (laughs) And fears are so irrational that often when you share them, people laugh. They can't believe that you have that fear. Uh, so, so how do you face those fears? You think through the hope that you have. What is it that you want to achieve in service of your vision? So it's not even about you. It's what you're trying to achieve. And when you have that, you gain courage. And the courage that you gain helps you understand that fear can limit you and that it's time to move past it. And that's when you start to feel your heart race. It's actually very exciting. A little bit like skydiving or doing things that you've never done before and how afraid you feel the first time you do it and then how fun it is after you've gotten through it and how you can now do it again and again because you're actually extending your comfort zone. That's the essence of engaging. Well, and it does take that risk-taking, which which uh, has an element of faith in it as well because you, you have to step out in faith that – someone's going to catch you, you know, if, if, if there is a problem. And so having those connections of if you make a mistake, having someone to go back to and getting that correcting step, you know, to actually propel you forward. Indeed. Uh, there's an academic at, at Harvard, Daniel Gilbert, who says that our imaginations of the worst that can happen are almost entirely worse than what really would happen. <laughs> we imagine much more. So we lose our jobs. That's a horrible, just, you know, we can't, that's not anything to laugh at. It's a hard, hard situation. But it's rarely as hard as what we imagine it to be. And it does open the door to something new. Right. Absolutely. So let's talk about the last one, which is the most exciting, uh, you know, yeah. we go around here. And, and that's actually uh, energizing or managing uh, the energy. Exactly. So many of us have uh, responsibilities outside of work. Uh, I think Carolyn mentioned um, three uh, kitties, and some of us have children. You mentioned you've got uh, a few children. I have two children. Uh, many of us have husbands who need a lot of caring for, or elderly parents, in-laws, etc. So we do a lot outside of work. We need more energy. That's just the long and short of it. So we spend our whole lives looking for work-life balance. Of the 125 women I spoke to, those who had uh, children, every single one of them said work-life balance is a myth. That's crushing. If it's a myth, what what do we have to try to have a semblance of a life? And it's energy management. So think about where you get your energy from and think about it in four ways. Physical energy, if you exercise, you actually will end up with more energy. Mental energy, you get energy when you do things that are fun for your brain to do. Emotional energy from the heart, when you touch someone or feel love from someone, you get tremendous energy. And spiritual energy, some of us are religious and we get it that way. Others are very social and we get energy from being part of a community, something that's bigger than ourselves. So we're, when you think about those four sources of energy, Where are you getting your energy from and what's draining you? And it's not black or white. So kids both give us energy and drain us of energy. (laughs) And so do husbands and so do uh, cats and dogs and and responsibilities of all kinds. 
And we get energy from work and we get drained from work. So as you think through the very, very clear specifics, how do you do more of what energizes you and do less of what drains you? The second tip, for those of us who use Blackberries or iPhones or Androids and we keep it in our bedroom, because, of course, we want to wake up to it and we want to see the emails right away. Single biggest source of energy is to not do that, to take that little machine and put it by the front door. And take instead, take the first 30 minutes and think through the answer for the day to one very difficult but simple question, which is, what do I want for and from myself today? And that's not a grocery list. That's really, what do I want to make happen? And I thought about you and this show today, and how can I be crisp and, and engaging to help people see this? The other thing that you could do is at night before you go to sleep, ask yourself, what three good things happened to me today? They don't have to be the best. They don't have to be graded. In fact, I prefer if you withheld judgment and thought through that, had a great walk to work today, had a great lunch today, and I wrote a memo that I'm really proud of, or I had a conversation with somebody that really made a difference. Three good things. You could actually do that with your children. Yeah, I was going to say that that's something that, in fact, when we first started the Executive Girlfriends Group and had a large number of people on the phone, at the end of the recorded part of the call, we would uh, terminate that, and then we would kind of go around the table saying, you know, what, what is, was the high point of your week? And I, I started that with my children uh, when they were, I don't know, uh, six and eight and decided I'd try it on my husband too. And uh, it actually made for really great dinner conversations. It's a wonderful idea. And you, if you do it, and I hope everybody does try it, add one more question, which is what didn't go so well or what's one not-so-good thing that happened today or this week. And the reason for that is to help your children know it's okay to give negative information, and parents will help you think about that as well. Right, for the yeah. for the women who, uh, a lot of women can also use an alternative, which I use, which is what's one thing I appreciate about myself today. Mm. If we learn to appreciate ourselves better, we'll also appreciate others. And for many many women, it's really quite tough to be nice to yourself. Right, right. Well, and that ties back into that positive framing thing. If if we spend our day, you know, walking into our closet and thinking, I don't have anything that fits me, and you know, you know, and and I've I've kind of been in in that loop lately. So you know, I can I can see how uh, you know these very very practical things that that you are sharing can can make a real difference, even even uh, in what I'm going through. You know, as as we uh, kind of come to a close here, I would love to hear one more story, uh, and, and perhaps from from the section on on managing energy and energizing. You've got a, a couple of very very interesting ones here uh, about uh, energy in your toolkit and uh, boundless energy, and and so just uh, I, I know you you can't play favorites on these, but I, w- I would love to hear uh, one more story from the. Oh audience. sure, yeah. you know one of the, one of the people I really really learned a lot from was Margaret Jackson, who used to be I hope you would pick <laughs> the non-executive chairman of Qantas, and um, uh-huh. Margaret actually really went through extremes uh, in terms of success and failure. 
So who better to teach us about managing energy? And the story that she tells, we use the video clip a lot, is that um, right after 9-11 hit, uh, they, uh, Qantas, which is an airline in Australia, had uh, 110,000 people stranded across Australia because all planes were stopped in the world, like nothing was flying. But they also had several thousand Australians in the United States who couldn't get home, who wanted desperately to go home, and including some pretty high-ranking government people who needed to get home. And she had to manage through that with her executive team. So they worked for weeks to to get this settled and then for months and she said it was just a roller coaster with the prime minister constantly talking to her and uh she couldn't call the time and place. She could be at a at a uh sporting game and just you know, wanting to be there and enjoy herself and she'd get a call from the top of the country and she'd have to go into the ladies room to take this call and try to address the latest problem that they were having and she says it was so stressful on her that she didn't even think about it but one day she came home and decided for no reason at all that she would cut uh, or prune her plum tree and as she put it she's not a gardener she's never pruned that plum tree that was sitting on the front lawn but she got out the the uh, the, the shears and uh, started uh, got up on a ladder and started to prune attack this poor tree, and she said she kept going until about two thirds of the tree was on the ground, and her husband came home luckily at that point and said, "Margaret, what are you doing?" And she stopped, and suddenly realized that she didn't know what she was doing, but that. Pruning that tree was such a great physical release for her that it gave her the relief from the stress that she needed. She went into the office the next week and talked to her, the, the management team and shared the story. And lo and behold, one of the executives sort of hit himself on the side of the head and said, you won't believe this, but I went home a few days ago. And I decided that the tree that was on the left side of my driveway had to be moved to the right side. I didn't know why, but I knew I had to do it. And so I literally stopped the car, parked it, and spent the rest of the evening moving that tree. And he said, oh, my God, I now realize that I, too, have been stressed out beyond belief. And then each member of the executive team shared their story. And it was a great relief for all of them together. And that's something that brings energy to get it off your chest and not only to do something physical, which you often need to do to restore energy, but to connect with people emotionally and spiritually will help you. And that, that story for Margaret, I will never, never forget. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, Joanna, we could probably go on all afternoon, but I know you've got an, an upcoming call, and I uh, want to be mindful of your time. I just want to thank you so much for sharing uh, such practical information and sharing it from your heart. And, uh, you know, it means a lot to me that the first thing you thought about this morning was making this call successful. And I will tell you that you can go home knowing that you absolutely did. <laughs> oh, thank you. And uh, I tell you what, are you in New York? I am indeed. Well, the next time I am in New York, I am definitely going to come by and, and meet you. It has been a, a real pleasure and uh, would just love to sit and have a cup of coffee with you. Oh, I look forward to it.
Well, terrific. Well, I'm going to stop the recorded portion of the call at this point uh, because I like to give those who are live on the call a chance to uh, just toss out some things at you, and uh, we want to want them to be completely unconstrained in what they say. So I am going to terminate the recorded uh, portion of the call right now. So give me one second, and I will do that, and we will dive into questions. 